Good morning, family of God. Well, last week we finished our long journey through the book of Exodus. Wasn't Exodus fun? God taught us a lot of stuff through that book. And here in a few weeks, we're going to be getting into Advent season, preparing ourselves to celebrate the coming of our Lord Jesus and his birth. But we're taking about five weeks right now for a sermon series called We Are the Church, studying what does it mean to be the people of God. And we're going to get lots of people involved in this. Jared's going to preach next week, and you're going to hear from Gavin and Chauncey. But we're getting started today with this theme of We Are the Church. And here's the key idea I want to start with today. In the English language, we use the word church in a lot of ways which are different than the way the Bible uses church. So whenever we talk about church in the scripture, we need to have it clear. What does the Bible mean by church? And here's some of the obvious differences. When we drive through the south side of Oklahoma City, we pass buildings with steeples and we say that's a church. But according to scripture, church is not a building. And sometimes we say things like I'm going to church and there's nothing wrong with that if we mean we're going to meet with the people of God. But according to scripture, church is not an event that you go to. Once a week or twice a week or three times a week. The church is the people of God. The church is the community of Christ's disciples. The Bible uses a lot of metaphors for the church. The church is the family of God. Everybody say God's family. God the Father is our Father. We're united in Christ, which makes us all brothers and sisters. A family of love where everybody has a place to belong. The, the Bible refers to the church also using the, edifor, uh, the metaphor of the army of God. Think of Ephesians chapter 6. It says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of evil. And then tells us to take on the full armor of God. So say, we are the army. And that means we're fighting against forces of evil, not with the weapons that the world uses, but with prayer, with love, with service, with the scriptures, which are the word of God. The Bible uses many metaphors, but the point here is the church is not a building. The church is not an event that we attend. Church leaders are not people who curate spiritual experiences. The church is the people of God, the people who are united with Christ, who have been forgiven of their sins by grace through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, who have been filled by the Holy Spirit. The church is the band of sisters and brothers who have covenanted to do the will of God together. In our time and in our place. So everybody say, we are the church. church. Now today, we're starting our study by getting into the book of Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, which Layla just read to us. And I've titled the message, The Glorious, Wonderful Church. Why Why am I calling it that? Because here's one of my, my prayers and my yearnings for this series. Is that this... Reality that we are the church would get us excited. See, according to the Bible, it's a really, really big deal to be the church. God has a special purpose for the church. When we understand what it means that we are the church, that gives us a profound sense of the holiness of the eternal significance of our lives, of the purpose for which we live and of the importance, the spiritual significance of our relationships with one another. And in the Bible, um, we find sometimes Christian people being self-critical. We need to be self-critical um, in the sense that we um, look at ourselves and find the ways that we fall short of God's standard and be willing to grow in Christ likeness and in maturity. But have you noticed that we have 
kind of a culture of complainers? I don't mean Christ Community Church, I just mean America. Don't we like to complain a lot in America? We complain about the government. We complain about sports. I've complained about the thunder a few times in the last few months. We complain about our jobs. We complain, we complain. And I'd say one of the things that, uh, this is going to be ironic because I'm going to be doing the thing I'm talking about. But one of my complaints about the American church is that we complain about ourselves too much. We're sort of like obsessively self-critical. And we ought to be self-critical in the sense that we're evaluating what we're doing and always checking ourselves by the word of God and trying to grow. But as I read the New Testament, when people start talking about the church, their first response is a sense of gratitude and joy and awe and encouragement and honor because it's a glorious thing to be the church of the living God. So everybody say, we are the church. And it's my prayer that as we reflect on all that that means, there would be a sense of purpose, a sense of joy, of gratitude and of energy that God will develop in our hearts over the coming weeks. So why don't you bow your head with me? Let's say a word of prayer as we begin to dig into the scriptures together today. Lord, we are only the church because of your grace. If we got what we deserved for our sin, we would face judgment. So I'm just, I just want to say thank you. Thank you right now for your grace that brings us into your family. So we can be forgiven. So we can have the hope of eternal life. And so we can be bound to one another in love. Lord, I, I do pray right now that you would forgive us in advance. Uh, as, as we're going to be learning over the course of these weeks I feel like we're probably going to be convicted and challenged in some ways of that we may have fallen short as a group or individually of your calling on the church. And, and I just want to pray in advance that you forgive us for that, Lord. And as, as your spirit teaches us and instructs us and convicts us, we commit in advance, Lord, we want to repent of every sin and we want to grow closer to you. We want to be all that you've called us to be. But right now, I also just pray that there would be a sense of joy sense of awe, a sense of purpose, Lord, that we'd come out of this five-week sermon series excited to be the people of God and with a renewed sense of awe about who we are in Christ and about the magnitude and the glory of what you have called us to be together. So, Holy Spirit, please come teach us now. And, and Lord, please help me. I am aware of my profound inadequacy to be a channel of your holy, perfect word, but your grace is sufficient. It's powerful, even in the midst of our weakness. So pray that you would teach us all, shape us, encourage us, challenge us, help us to grow. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Well, what I want to do today is highlight four truths. I'm sorry, three truths. Three truths. If you want to take me to coffee this week, I'll give you a fourth one. But three truths today. Um, from Ephesians 4, 1 through 16, that are telling us why the church is a glorious and wonderful thing. So here's three glorious, wonderful truths about the church. The first one is this simple metaphor. We are the body of Christ. So everybody say the body of Christ. This is one of Paul's favorite metaphors for the church. He uses it a lot of different times and he uses it to make different points in different situations. Uh, look with me at how it shows up in this passage. It really runs throughout the whole passage. And verse four, when Paul's talking about Unity, he says, there is one body. You might underline those words, one body. And it becomes clear what he means by that as we keep reading. 
For example, in verse 12, when he's talking about all of us working together to help this community grow in maturity and Christlikeness, we read this, that all of uh, that the leaders have been given to the church to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the and here's the words, the body of Christ, the body of Christ. So what is the point of the metaphor? Why does Paul call us the body of Christ? Well, there's several points that Paul is making here. The first one is that Jesus is our head. We see this in verse 15. Look at verse 15 with me. Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. So in the church, Jesus is in charge. He's the Lord. He's the authority. The reason we are church is because Jesus died on the cross for our sins and rose again. That's the only reason any of us can have a relationship with God. And it's the only thing that unites us with one another. So Jesus is the absolute authority. Everybody say Jesus is the head. That sets our standards. That sets our priorities for what we do as the church of Jesus Christ. Our mission is not going to change as our moods change. Our values are not going to change as the cultural winds start blowing in different directions. Jesus is the head. Jesus is the authority. So we look at Jesus and we say that's what in Jesus we find the image of the invisible God. He shows us who God is. In Jesus we find the incarnation of full and perfect humanity. So he shows us what we're supposed to be like. In Jesus we find the commanding officer of this army. Jesus is the head. It's all about Jesus. And Jesus delegates authority to his saints to accomplish his work in the world. And Jesus gives our marching orders in the word of God, which is the scriptures. So we are a people under the authority of Jesus Christ, which means as leaders come and leaders go, as culture changes, our mission stays the same. Our purpose stays the same because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. So when we talk about being the body of Christ, the first thing that we need to say is Jesus is the head. He's in charge. He's the truth. And we're always submitted to his word, not to our own feelings or our own uh, or, or the changing winds of the culture. Second thing to say about this metaphor, Paul is emphasizing that we are connected by Christ. We, all of us, are connected to one another by Christ and we're empowered by the spirit for a life of interdependent love. Interdependent love. What that means is we need each other. I need you. Everybody say, I need you. And you need me. And the church, we're connected by Jesus. We're empowered by the Spirit for a life of interdependent love. This is emphasized in our text in, in a few different places. Uh, first, look back to verse 7. Paul says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, I'm going to come back to this verse in a few minutes. But here's what I want you to get right now. Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, has uniquely equipped every one of us in here if we've trusted in Christ. So you have a spiritual gift. If you've trusted in Jesus, the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. And God in his wisdom has dispersed the gifts. I have some gifts and you have different gifts. And you have different gifts than your neighbor. And he has done this in a, a wise way so that we all need one another. Now, we've got to ask ourselves the question, why did God choose to do it this way? Wouldn't it be nice to have all the spiritual gifts? Wouldn't it be cool if you were like a really great teacher, a really great evangelist, you were great at hospitality, 
you uh, were wise, words of wisdom, words of knowledge, service. You could just be walking around your own little Jesus everywhere. And yet God didn't make it that way. And maybe one of the reasons he didn't make it that way is because he wants you to understand that you're not your own little Jesus walking around everywhere. None of us is the Messiah. There's only one. Who's our head? That's right. It's all about Jesus. He's the head. And we can only fulfill the purpose of Christ and faithfully represent Christ in our community and come to know and enjoy all that Christ has for us if we do it together. So part of the image here, the metaphor of the body of Christ is that we need each other. If I'm the hand, but you're the elbow, I can't do what I got to do unless you do what you got to do. See this? And look, look what is said down in verse 16. Again, we're going to talk about this a bit later as well. But for now, let's look at it. And it says the whole body joined and held together by every joint. You might circle those words. Every joint. Every joint with which it is equipped. When each part, you might circle those words too. When each part is working properly, makes the body of Christ grow so that it builds itself up in love. So our growth is dependent on every joint. It's dependent on each part. So I'm a part of the body. You're a part of the body. Let's do the math here. If 80% of us are being faithful to do the work that God has called us to do, are we going to be able to fulfill 100% of what God has called us to do? We're not going to be able to do it unless each member does its part. So everybody say every joint. Everybody say each part. All of us have a role. Let's say this negatively and then let's say it positively. Negatively, here's what we're saying. If you or I start having a bad attitude or we start walking in sin or we start basically just living selfishly, we've been taught a lot, we've grown a lot, we've got knowledge of the scripture, the Holy Spirit lives inside of us, but basically we decide, I just want to coast. Maybe I'll show up. Once or twice a week for events. Maybe I'll give a little financial resources to help the ministry. But I'm too tired. I got too much going on to do the active work of serving, of discipling, of teaching, of helping the church grow. If one of us decides not to do that, then everybody suffers and we're not able to fully to fully uh, finish the work that God has given us to do. That's the negative way to say it. But the positive way to say it, this your role is crucial. Your individual role in the body of Christ is vital. We can't be what God has called us to be without you, which means if you do your part, God is going to do wonderful work to make us mature and to accomplish his purposes in the world. So you may feel like, what do I have to offer? And what Paul is saying is, listen, we're the body of Christ and you're one of the joints. You're one of the parts. And so your role is important. Your role is vital. We need you. Everybody say, I need you. You need me. But there's a third point that Paul's making with this image of the body of Christ. Not only is he teaching us Jesus is the head. He's the head of Christ's community church. He's the head of the universal church. And is he teaching us that we're connected and interdependent, just like a body is connected? Paul is also teaching us here. That Jesus wants to work through this community To make his presence seen and felt and experienced in the world. Now, to help you understand this, I want to ask you to flip back to chapter one. You got your Bible with you or your iPhone, whatever you need. Go to Ephesians chapter one. Verse 
I want to look at verses 22 and 23, in which Paul is using this same metaphor of the church as the body of Christ. And listen to what he says. It says, and he, that is God the Father, put all things under his, that's Jesus, God the Father put all things under Jesus' feet and gave him, Jesus, as head over all things to the church. Everybody say, Jesus is the head. But then listen to what he goes on and says here. Jesus is the head, and Jesus has been given as head of all things to the church, which is his body. So that's the body metaphor. And then he says this, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, I want you to reflect with me on what that phrase means. Jesus is the head. We are the body. We as a community are the body. And as the body, Paul says, we are the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, what does that mean? Jesus is the one who fills all in all, right? Jesus is the omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent king of the universe. He's everywhere. He holds the whole world in his hands. But then if you ask the question, but where is the presence of Jesus most fully encountered and experienced in the world? And what Paul is saying is this. The answer is the presence of Jesus is most fully encountered and experienced in the world through his body, which is the church. So everybody say, we are the body. This is Paul in sophisticated theological language saying, if people in your neighborhood are going to encounter Jesus, they're probably going to encounter him through you. But he's not just saying that through you individually. He's saying it through you, plural. We got a word for that in Oklahoma because we're sophisticated. Everybody say y'all. If people are going to encounter Jesus in your community, they're going to encounter his presence through his body, which is y'all, the community of faith. Where is the fullness of him who fills all in all? It's in his body, the church. Now, this is what Christians sometimes call incarnational theology. Jesus is the word became flesh. The son of God became incarnate and lived among us. But Paul is saying now Jesus has ascended to the right hand of the father. Jesus is sitting on a throne in heaven. And if people are going to feel and touch and encounter Jesus Christ in, in our community, they're going to encounter him through us, his body. Okay, so um, let's just break this down a little bit. If people are going to encounter Jesus out at Mayfair Square Apartments, how are they going to encounter him? They're going to encounter him through Mr. Webb. They're going to encounter him through Josh. They're going to encounter him through Morgan Curry. They're going to encounter him through Gavin. They're going to encounter him through the people of God who have planted their lives in that place to make the presence of Jesus known. Got it? If people out at Coolidge Elementary are going to encounter the presence of Jesus, how are they going to encounter him? Well, they're going to encounter him through Jamie, who's teaching at that school. They're going to encounter him through Chauncey and Jared and Gavin and Shauna, who go once a week to be reading buddies and to love people in that school. If we are not there physically present, then they're not going to have this access. But if we are there physically present, what Paul is saying is the purpose of the church as the body of Christ is to be the fullness of him who fills all in all. Where we go, Christ makes his presence known. You catching that? So that's an incarnational theology of the church that Paul is doing in Ephesians chapter one. Now, this should be challenging and convicting for us because sometimes we don't act enough like Jesus. Right. Which is why we also need the truth that we find um, a bit earlier in Ephesians chapter four that Jesus is interested in 
shaping us to become like him. Look at verse 13. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 13. Talking about everybody's working for the building up of the body of Christ. That's the end of chapter 12, uh, verse 12, rather. And then in verse 13, we read this. Until we all, so that's talking about us as a community. We all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. So we're all trying to know Jesus. Everybody say, know Jesus. And as we be, as we know him more and more, we become more and more like him. So the next phrase says to mature manhood, which isn't a very good translation. It would be better to say either to to become mature persons or even to say to mature humanity, because what Paul is saying is that the church of Jesus Christ is the new humanity. Jesus is the new Adam. When we're united with Christ, we're plugged into the new humanity. And we as a community collectively are coming to reflect more and more the character of Jesus, which means we're becoming fully and authentically human for the first time. Look at what the text says. Until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, we get to know Jesus, which means we become mature humans, full and authentic humans as a community, to the, and that means we reach the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. What he's saying is, as we know Jesus, we become like Jesus, which means we become the outpost of God's new humanity in the world, showing a different way to live as humans, which is shaped by Jesus. So this is this metaphor that we are the body of Christ is saying several important things. Having talked about it a little bit, I want to break it down for you before we move on to the next one. So everybody say, we are the body of Christ. This metaphor tells us a lot about our authority and our three-part goal. Our authority is Jesus Christ. Every other authority in the church is subject to the authority of Jesus alone. And our three-part goal that we see revealed here is to know Jesus, to become like Jesus, and to love one another and live in our community in such a way that the people around us come to experience the power and presence of Jesus through our community life. That's what God has called us to do. Now, I want you to understand that what that looks like can be what I just described. It can be humble service. It can be opening up your Bible with a a friend, with a neighbor. It could just be be, being present in your front lawn uh, when when your neighbor's taking out the trash so that when they come and say to you, hey, I just got out of rehab and I'm wanting to get my life straight. You're going to be there to listen to them and talk to them about it, which is what happened to me this last week. It's just about being present. And plugged into Jesus so that we're uh, fully engaged with what he's doing, filled with his spirit, filled with his word and ready to make his presence known in our community. And we don't carry that burden as individuals, but as as a community, as a family together. But you also need to recognize that if you're faithfully bearing witness to Jesus and embodying his presence in our community, then if the world hates Jesus, guess who else is going to hate? Should we expect that this is going to be easy, friends? If we're the body of Christ, then we're going to suffer blows like the body of Christ suffered blows. That's just part of it. And we get a little reminder of that in verse one. Look, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. Paul was in jail. When he wrote this, he was a prisoner for Christ. So what he's saying to us is you have a holy purpose as a group. You're working to know Jesus better to become more like Jesus and to make his presence known in the world, which means you're loving, you're serving, you're teaching, and you're confronting the powers of evil like Jesus did in a way that gets you engaged in spiritual warfare. There's a mission, there's a fight that's involved in this. 
Everybody say, we are the body of Christ. It's a glorious calling. Second truth that we need to hear this morning is this. According to Paul and according to Ephesians chapter 4, what unites us as the church is far greater than anything that could divide us. What unites us is far greater than anything that could divide us. Now, if we wanted to make a list of things that could divide us, we could make a long list, couldn't we? This is America. We're real divided about politics right now, aren't we? Politics could divide us. Um, and we're in the era of identity politics, which means uh, we slice people up by um, race, ethnicity, gender, socioeconomic status, etc. All these different qualifiers. So we could be divided by politics. We could be divided by ethnicity. We could be divided by culture. We could be divided by gender. We could be divided by education level. We could be divided by socioeconomic status. But we will not be. Because what unites us is greater than anything that could divide us. That's what Paul is saying. Look at look at it in verse four and five. He, he goes through a lot of ones here. He says there is one body. One body, friends, that's what we've been talking about. There's only one body of Christ. There are not 20 bodies of Christ. So the devil may try to divide us, but it is as impossible to divide the body of Christ as it is to divide God himself. Can't be done. There is one body and one spirit. The Holy Spirit, if I've trusted in Christ, lives in me. The Holy Spirit, if you've trusted in Christ, lives in you. The Holy Spirit lives in each individual in the church down the street. The Holy Spirit lives in every Christian in China, every Christian in Kenya, every Christian in Colombia, all over the world. We got brothers and sisters filled with the Holy Spirit of God who is speaking to each one of us, comforting each one of us, encouraging one of us. If the same God, the Holy Spirit, lives inside of us, then you can't divide us. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope. That's a good one. Everybody say one hope. What does that mean? We better learn how to get along together because we're going to spend forever together. That's what that means. We're all going to live with Jesus in the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. And it's not going to be segregated up there. It's going to be joy and justice and freedom and worship with one new humanity from every tribe, tongue, language and nation. All reconciled, all worshiping God together. So there's one body, one spirit, one hope. Look at verse five. There is one Lord. That's Jesus. If Jesus is my Lord and Jesus is your Lord, then we can't be divided from one another. We're taking marching orders from the same Lord and Savior who gave his life for us on the cross. It says there's one faith. Sometimes faith is used in the subjective sense of trusting God. Sometimes it's used in the objective sense, the truths that we believe. And Paul seems to be using it in that sense here. Christians throughout the whole world are believing the Bible together, preaching the Bible together, teaching the Bible together. They're confessing the Nicene Creed together, and they're all united by that one faith, even if other things would divide them. One baptism. If you've been baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, raise your hand. We've got one baptism that unites us with God's people All over the world. And then it says one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So all three persons of the Trinity are here. We've already talked about the Holy Spirit. We talked about Jesus, the Lord. Now we're talking about God, the father. And if he's all of our father, that makes us family. What unites us is greater than anything that could divide us. Now, we went through a long list 
of stuff that could divide us a second ago. We could be divided by politics. We could be divided by ethnicity. We could be divided by culture. We could be divided by economics. We could be divided by education. There's a lot that could divide us, and we haven't even got to the interpersonal stuff. We could be divided just because you don't like me, right? We could be divided because he was mean to you, or she hurts your feelings. We could be divided by all kinds of things. But here's what I want you to get. I am not saying that we should be united. I'm saying we are united. I'm not saying that those things should not divide us. I'm saying that those things cannot divide us. We are united whether we act like it or not. Now we can tell the truth. Do we always act like a church? No. We are united whether we live out that unity or not. We are united by Jesus whether we love each other like Jesus loved us or not. But when we live like we're divided, we're being unfaithful, untrue to the reality that Jesus accomplished by his death and resurrection. We are united. A metaphor here. I've tried to garden several times in my life, and I don't have a lot of good gardening stories about how you plant and you water, and then after a long time you reap a har- harvest. But I've got lots of sermon illustrations that come from gardening failures. Here's one. Bermuda grass. It looks divided at the top. So I spray, I dig, I do all this stuff to get the Bermuda grass out of my flower garden, and it just looks like an individual blade of grass. But you pull the grass... And it comes back up. Why does it come back up? Because there's a whole beneath the surface. There's a whole network, a whole matrix. I don't know what to call it. There's a whole bunch of grass and it's all connected to each other. Right. And if you don't get it down to the root, all the surface it's going to pop up everywhere. And I, I, I may pop up way over there because there was a root way over here that I didn't get, didn't get to. It's, it may look like it's divided on the surface, but it's actually united under the surface. See what I'm saying? And that's what gives us strength. That's what makes it hard to kill. Even if you're trying to, which I'm trying to do. Pray for my garden, everybody. But now let's bring us back to the reality of the church. What I'm saying, friends, is even when we fail to love each other well, we are united. Even if we're split into a whole bunch of different denominations, we are the only one body of Christ. Even if we're racially segregated on Sunday mornings, we're still got the same Holy Spirit living at this church and that church and that church. You hear what I'm saying? So there is only one body of Christ. We are united. Does that mean automatically we live it out? Well, no. Experience tells us not. But also this text tells us that. And what it says is we've got to work, to work every single one of us at living out the reality of who we are in Christ. Let's read verses 1 and 2 to help make this plain. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord... Urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness. With patience, bearing with one another in love. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And then it goes on and says there is one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all. Here's what Paul is saying. You are united by God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, by your baptism, by your faith, by your hope. You are united by those things. So now live like it. Now work at it. Work hard together to show the world the unity of love. And he lists some character qualities that we're going to need if we're going to do that. And the first of the list is what? Humility. Humility. Pride is the enemy of Christian community. Humility brings healing. 
What does pride cause us to do? Pride causes us to be very critical of other people and to maximize their faults while failing to see all the good things about them and all the ways they serve and bless us. Pride causes us to think of ourselves more highly than we ought while not seeing our own failure and our own weakness and uh, the ways that we need the ministry of the body. If you're struggling with a critical spirit towards brothers and sisters in Christ, you've got a pride problem. That's what Paul is saying. And that pride will tell a lie about Jesus to the world because it will show a divided church when in reality Jesus has united the church. So he's calling us to radical humility, gentleness, patience. Now, that's a good one, because if you're going to be united with me, it's going to take a lot of work over a long period of time. Right. I'm not going to get all sorted out overnight. There is no such thing as a perfectly mature church that's always healthy and never has problems. Why? Here's here's why. A healthy church is leading people to Christ. If we're not leading people to Christ, then we're not mature and healthy. But if we are leading people to Christ, that means we've always got baby believers around who are immature. Which means either the church is immature because we're not leading people to Christ, or the church has got all kinds of drama and problems because we are leading people to Christ, which means we've got immature baby believers around here. So there's always going to be problems in church, right? There's always going to be problems. But what Paul says is with patience, bear with one another. Or you could say put up with one another. Or you could say keep fighting for one another with love. Do it in love. Even when it's hard, you don't give up. Because we've, what's un, what unites us is far greater than anything that could divide us. Now, this leads us to the third and final point. Third glorious and wonderful truth about the church that I want to mention today. First, we are the body of Christ. Second, what's un, what unites us is greater than anything that could divide us. And third, finally, here's what I want us to get before we leave today. According to Ephesians 4, every Christian is a saint and a minister. Okay, that's the first part of this. So everybody say, we are saints. Everybody say, we are ministers. Every Christian is a saint and a minister. Jesus gives leaders to the church for the purpose of helping the saints to do the work of the ministry. So this is such an important thing if we're going to learn how to live out our calling. Look with me at verses 11 and 12. It says, and he that is Jesus. Gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. Now, let me pause. Right there for one second. To understand what's happening in verse 11, we got to go back to verse seven. I said we come back to it. Remember what verse seven said? But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So Jesus has given grace. He's given spiritual gifts to every member of the body of Christ. You see what it says? Each one of us. Each one of us has been given grace. Each one of us has received a spiritual gift. And then in verses 8, 9, and 10, Paul does a really cool thing where he quotes Psalm 68, which is a psalm that depicts God as the victorious warrior king. And he says, Jesus is that warrior king. And after Jesus defeated Satan and sin on the cross, he rose from the grave and went up, ascended to the right hand of his father in heaven. And then he poured out the Holy Spirit. And then he says this in verse 12, excuse me, verse 11. He has given spiritual gifts to everyone. And in particular, now Paul emphasizes Jesus has given to the church certain kinds of particularly gifted individuals 
who are there for the purpose of serving and equipping the rest of the church. So this list, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds and teachers, we don't have time to go into what each one of those means. And there's debates uh, about whether all, all of those, whether there's four or five things in this list, actually, and whether all of them are still in action today. I don't have time to talk about all that today. But here's the basic point I want you to get. Jesus gives spiritual gifts to every Christian and he gives the church the gift of particularly gifted individuals who have a leadership role. And what is their role? Well, that becomes clear in verse 12. The role of these leaders is to equip the saints. Who's the saints? That's right. Everybody say we the saints to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. True or false. The apostles, prophets, uh, evangelists, pastors, teachers do all the work of the ministry. False. Good answer. You're paying attention. False. Who does the work of the ministry? The saints. Everybody. That's why we said a second ago, we're all ministers. What then is the role of those that God has specifically and specially gifted in one of these leadership roles? Well, it's to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Let's just talk about what this looks like in concrete. I think Jared's probably an evangelist. Um, Jared is always sharing the gospel with people in our neighborhood. He's leading people to Christ. He's sharing the gospel with young people, with old people, with kids, with adults, with teenagers. He's good at it. And I think God has given Jared as a gift to the universal church, but specifically to Christ Community Church for several reasons. One of them is there's some people that Jared has led to Christ over the last six or seven years and that he will lead to Christ over the coming years that God loves them. And so God sent Jared to lead them to Christ. But another reason God has given Jared to us as a gift is because God wants Jared to help all of us learn how to share the gospel. He wants to use Jared to equip all of us to do the work of the ministry. Tracking with me? I think Chauncey is a shepherd. Anybody ever felt shepherded by Chauncey? Chauncey is good at listening to people. Chauncey is good at praying for people. He will listen to your problem. He'll share the word of God to you. He'll be there with you to weep when you weep, to rejoice when you rejoice. He's a great shepherd. Now, God did not make Chauncey the shepherd so that every time there's a crisis, Chauncey's the one to go fix it. God made Chauncey a shepherd to equip all of us to learn how to listen to people, to pray with people, to sit with people in their hard times, to weep with those who weep, to rejoice with those who rejoice, to share the scriptures with one another. In other words, these gifted individuals God has given to the church not to do all the work of the ministry, but to equip all of us to do all the work of the ministry. You tracking with that? So everybody say, we are the saints. We are the ministers. <coughs> now, there's massive ramifications for this. Let, let's talk about a few of them before we wrap up. This is once again a re-emphasis of something that we said when we were talking about the body of Christ. Every person here has a vital role to play in the body of Christ. We need Marina. We can't do it without you. We need Tatiana. We can't do it without you. Just around the room. We need Austin. We can't do it without him. We need Todd. Can't do it without him. We need Infinity. Can't do it without him. Everybody here has a vital role to play. If we're going to be all that God has called us to be, we've got to all do it all together. Here's another implication of what this means. What do we do when we encounter a problem in the church? I'm just so excited about this point of application. This is glorious. What do we do? What do we do when we encounter a problem in the church? Let's talk about an immature response and a mature response. 
When we encounter a problem in the church, here's an immature response. Who do I complain to? That's an immature response. (laughs) Greg just identified Chauncey. That's who you complain to. (laughs) Now Greg. (laughs) That ain't right. Um, An immature response says, who do I complain to? Where's the complaint box? You know how the restaurant has the complaint box out there? Where when your food comes late and it's cold, you write down your stuff and put it in there. Where is the complaint box? There's several reasons why that's an immature response. One of them is because if we complain all the way up to the top of the chain, who's the head of this thing? Jesus, really? You're going to complain to Jesus? You might say, no, 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 my problem isn't with Jesus. It's with middle management. Friends, I don't know if you read this text. There is no middle management here. There's just servants who are here to equip you to do the work of the ministry. So a mature response when we have a problem in the church is not to say, who do I complain to? It's to say, how can I help? That's what mature saints say. Let's say, oh, that's such a good point. Let's say it again. Everybody, a mature response is not to say, who do I complain to? Everybody say, how can I help? Now, that doesn't mean we don't hold leaders accountable. If, if leaders are slacking off and not doing the work of equipping the saints, please rebuke us, pray for us, rebuke us again, fire us if you need to, do whatever you got to do. But the point here is the responsibility for this becoming a healthy, mature church that embodies the reconciling love of Jesus and that shares the gospel and that makes disciples and that fulfills God's hurt of love and justice in our neighborhood and that sends missionaries to the world. The responsibility for all of that lies on every single one of us. So there's collective responsibility. There's collective ownership. The church is a glorious and wonderful thing. To say that we are the church means that we have a high and holy calling. I just want to end today with this thought. The only reason any of us get to be members of the church is by the grace of Jesus Christ. He died on the cross for our sins so we could be forgiven by faith in his name. He rose again. If you want to know how to have a relationship with God, all you got to do is trust in Jesus. And what I'm here to say to you today is that when you trust in Jesus, not only are you forgiven of your sins, but you're invited into a family. And this family has a purpose from God. In other words, to join Christ Community Church does not mean to sign up to come here once a week for spiritual experiences. What it means is to lock arms with a band of brothers and sisters that says, come hell or high water, we will do whatever it takes to fulfill the purpose of God in this community until Jesus calls us home or sends us on assignment to another place. That's what it means. And that is a gift. It's a gift of grace, which gives us purpose. Let's bow our heads together and pray. Our Father, I want to end like I began by just saying thank you. Thank you for the gift of inviting us into the body of Christ. Thank you for the gift of inviting us into the family of God. And Lord, I want to pray that you would help us to live it out with humility, with love, with faithfulness and patience and service. Forgive us for the many ways we fell. But I pray that even now, as we're meditating on the gospel and going to the Lord's table, that the gospel would be renewing in us an excitement about this holy calling of knowing Jesus, of becoming more like him, and of living in our time and place in a way that helps people encounter the fullness of his presence. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.